Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Ennis, a.k.a. Anarcho Refusenik. He is an anarchist, a writer, and creator. On the show, we discuss philosophy, geopolitics, spirituality, and art. Hope you enjoy Solidarity Forever. someone that refuses to follow unjust laws. You are a narco-refusenik, aren't you? Yes, I am. Well, have, you, uh, have you come across any unjust laws that you refuse to follow? Never. What are you talking about? <laughs> you are yeah, a rule-abiding anarchist, I am. What was that? Are you a rule-abiding anarchist? Yes, I am. I love all the laws in place and all the rules that we have to follow. <laughs> well, how did you become an anarchist? When did you decide that's going to be your guiding political philosophy? Well, let's start here. From a young age, I always knew that something was very wrong with the way that we live. Um, I suppose our form of social organization, our civilization, it seems very clear to me that something was um, tremendously wrong and it was something below the surface. And it was only in um, reading different theorists and thinkers that I came upon anarchism. And I would say that Noam Chomsky was my big intro to anarchism. Um, and he was very formative in my thinking. And, you know, in the past few years, I, I, I think he's become someone that the actual Noam Chomsky would have despised, the younger Noam Chomsky. Um, so I don't know if I'm as huge of a fan of him anymore, but he was very formative um, in my thinking at the time. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big anarchist. Uh, I think Noam Chomsky is kind of what I first, what brought me to the, the subject of uh, political theory and anarchism, which is what I tend to gravitate towards. I love uh, anarcho-syndicalism, Rudolf Rocker. I thought that was a pretty good book. Uh, and then Chomsky has definitely been a pr- pretty good guiding um, you know, philosopher himself, uh, and also has given me a lot of recommendations uh, of people to to read. Um, so I think I've I have him to thank for the majority of my radicalization uh, and how I kind of view the political system nowadays. Maybe compared to how I viewed it ten or however many years ago when I first started diving deep into the kind of political philosophy and philosophy generally. Uh, I don't know about Chomsky, like. I, yeah, I think I think he he's certainly not uh, he's certainly not as maybe radical as he as he once was. Like he seems to prefer the democratic 
uh, corporate party over the over the Republicans, surely. Uh, but I I, st- I still think um, the the basis for his political thinking hasn't changed much. I just maybe he's not quite as as radical as he once was, and maybe he's a little bit more mainstream. But I think he still um, thinks that the Democratic Party isn't very great. I just think you know, listening to some of his recent, uh, and he hasn't done much in the last six months. He's kind of, kind of. I don't know if he's going to retire from you know political engagements and, and public speaking and stuff. But he just turned at ninety five last week, so I mean, I think he's kind of getting near the end of his career. I don't know how much more he has to give, but I, I don't think, I don't think the, the thing I've read about him recently. I don't think he's changed a lot. I just, I don't know if he's quite as radical as he used to be, but I don't, I don't know too much that I disagree with him other than, you know, he prefers Biden over Trump, but he certainly hasn't given Biden any ringing endorsements or anything like that. What have you noticed from Chomsky is I've read a ton of his stuff over the last five or eight years. What, what do you notice of, uh, uh, about his, his maybe his changes as of late? What, what do you disagree with that he's been saying? I think that, well, for me, the writing was on the wall when, as you said, he told us to vote for Biden over Trump. Um, to me, um, someone like Chomsky was once very acutely aware of what Biden represents and how, in some ways, Trump is a creation of Biden's politics, if you will. Um, but beyond that, you know, he recently came up came out with this master class about disinformation and perhaps it's just innocuous, but to me, that's like a, a, that's an establishment term that they use to crack down on narratives that they don't like more often than not. So that seems odd to me. And then some of his views on the pandemic to me seemed very authoritarian as well. I agree with you there. Yeah, I definitely, uh, there's a lot of people, especially in the, in the democratic party that one of the authoritarian, you know, if you, if you don't get the vaccine, we're going to cut you out of society. You're going to lose your job and all that kind of stuff. And I think people should have a choice, especially um, as the vaccine was, you know, essentially, uh, you know, created by big pharma. It was kind of, um, you know, one of the worst, you know, or, or type of, uh, you know, organizations in the world where, you know, profit seeking institutions taking tons of taxpayer monies to make these um, drugs essentially um, and, and making billions, billions of dollars on a pandemic. Like, you know, the, the trust and approval for big pharma is very, very low, these, these corporations. So, yeah, already right there, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of something they're going to force onto us um, from big pharma. But it also seemed like it was kind of fast-tracked. Um, you know, the establishment wasn't really very, very, um, didn't take very well to criticism or uh, fielding difficult questions about, you know, the vaccine generally. I'm no anti-vaxxer and I took the vaccine. Um, but yeah, I think people should have had a choice. You know, I think body autonomy is a, is a good thing. Uh, that's definitely something, yeah, I agree with and, and, and with with your synopsis there. He did seem pretty authoritarian when it came to uh, the vaccine uh, and forced vaccinations and, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, there was definitely uh, his famous book, um, manufacturing of consent. Our consent was certainly manufactured. We were cursed, you know, to take the vaccine. You didn't have, really have many choices. A lot of people lost their jobs who didn't want to take it. And I don't think that that's right. So I agree with you there. You Did you see that similarities as I did about uh, you know, the manufacture of consent and the, the issues and problems with big pharma, the coercion? You saw all that stuff too? Exactly. And it seemed like, it, it seemed like either he had forgotten his entire work and everything he's written or, I don't know, did someone 
pay him. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into those theories. I have no idea. But it did seem odd to me, and it didn't seem in keeping with the rest of his thinking. And um, I know many people have different views on this, but my position has been that there is something Orwellian about mandating any pharmaceutical or medical product, and um, that disturbed me very much. Um, especially when... something about uh, people going out in public that were unvaccinated was very similar to someone going out in public with a automatic weapon and just firing off in all directions. And I'm like, well, I don't know. That's a little extreme. I don't necessarily agree with that. You know what I mean? That's, that seems a little bit out there. Yes. Yes. Um, so let's, let's go to your writer. So what, what kind of, um, let's talk maybe about your, um, influences outside of Chomsky. So you're big into philosophy. You like to write. You're an author. You're a creator. So maybe talk about some of your influences and maybe some of the projects you're working on now or maybe even future projects. One of my big influences um, has been Bertolt Brecht. Does that name ring a bell for you? I, it doesn't. Yeah, I'm not too much into the, the postmodern or modern philosophers. So I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think about them and why they're influential to you, though. I wouldn't describe as, describe him as postmodern, but he was a German kind of theater uh, theorist, if you will. And his entire um, theory was based on using art as a vehicle for social change. Um, he was a communist. He was very critical of capitalism. He wanted to use art as, as, a, as a mechanism to kind of get people to start questioning their social environment. Um, and I found that very inspiring. I've always been very interested in the intersection between art and social change. And not to the degree that you're writing propaganda. You know, I think that anything I, I end up writing or creating or producing, I would want to raise more questions than answers. But I still think that art can be a very powerful um, tool of social change and raising consciousness and raising questions. Um, books have changed the world. And in terms of... Um, the other piece that I want to add to this real quick is I would I will say um, writing has always been my biggest passion and creativity in general. And uh, in New York over the past few years, I've, I've been very blessed to work with kind of mentors and teachers who really taught me a lot about writing and really opened things up for me and gave me a lot of tools that I now have in my toolkit. Um, so essentially what I'm saying here is for me actually – creating writing and politics are and even philosophy are deeply intertwined oh yeah totally i totally agree with that for sure um you are from turkey and uh you're now uh in the united states and been living in new york now for for how long well so i grew up in turkey and then i moved to new york and i lived in new york for seven eight years um, at the moment, I'm actually in Canada. I'm traveling about, and I don't actually know where I'm going to end up next, if I'm going to return to the U.S. or not. So, so we'll see. But my, my history has mostly been Turkey and New York. Really interesting. So uh, we're out in Canada, and you're going to stay there for a while? Um, yeah, I'm going to stay here until I figure my life out and what I'm going to do with myself. So it's all up in the air. <laughs> I feel like I feel like very similar too. My life's kind of all up in the air. I'll, I'll let you know when I figure it out as well. <laughs> That's cool. Where where, uh, where where are some options? Where are you thinking about moving to? I don't know. I have the opportunity to return to New York. Um, you know, with a real work visa this time. Um, I really I, I did work. I had worked 
worked previously in, in New York for kind of an employer who is much closer to my philosophy and thinking than many employers out there. So it, that's a possibility. But I don't know if the U.S. Um, it, in many ways, it gets counter to my values. So I don't know. I don't know is the honest answer. Like I don't. I have to figure this out in the next few months. What I'm going to do with my life from here. Let's. I think. Well, let's go all over the place with this podcast because we have a lot of things in common. Uh, when you said about you know the United States and and your values and employers, like I hate that term employer. Wherever, I do. Too. Like already, you know, we have we have a class of people where we have a hierarchy. You know, one people employs and controls another type of or another class of people, you know, we have the people that own the companies and, and then the managers and everybody else, you know, so I hate that. I want worker owned, worker controlled, uh, co-ops, or maybe even just workers owning and controlling the means of production. What do you think about that? I am exactly on the same page with you. Um, I want to see worker owned cooperatives. I believe that workers should own the means of production. I have agreements and disagreements with Marx, but that is a strong agreement that I have with him. I think he was right about that piece of it. Um, so we're on the same page there. Not going to be easy, though. It's going to be an uphill battle, the, especially in the United States. The history of labor has been very violent. The capitalists have been uh, certainly the aggressors. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh area. The homestead riots, the homestead strikes. They brought in the Pinkertons to mow down the striking workers who are just looking for a living wage and better and safer working conditions. And throughout the entire history of the United States, there's been violent interactions between the capitalist ownership class and the workers. Right. And it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems to me that there was actually a very, very militant labor movement, particularly in the 30s. And then that got suppressed and diluted. And it's been but it's been making a comeback in the past few decades, I suppose you could say. And I think, frankly, that propaganda plays a big role in the U.S. A lot of people have been socialized into capitalism and to kind of assume that capitalism is the best or only way to organize a society. And there's a lot of Cold War inversion that goes in there, too. Um, but I think that we're seeing a reversal of that and a slow, gradual awakening. Yeah, I think I think I read an article, something along the lines of labor unions have never been more popular in the United States than they are right now, which is a great thing. But because uh, of the one-sided class war and how successful the capitalists have been with propaganda and you know essentially buying up any co-ops and running them out of business so they can kind of maintain that's class warfare so they can kind of maintain control using corporations to dominate our society uh, right now I think we have the lowest percentage of uh, workers who are in a union so even though unions are more popular than ever uh, the United States, I think it's like 10 or maybe it's like 10.1%, something like that, of the total workforce is in a union. Um, so it's, yeah, and, and the majority of that is actually federal workers. So in terms of like the private um, private workforce not working for the government, uh, it's at, at an all-time low. So that's, you know, not a great thing. And that's because of, um, you know, again, how successful the class war has been here in the United States. And, yeah, essentially – you know, labor uh, at one time, you know, you know, was a very, very powerful force, you know, and I think that was the reason during uh, the uh, New Deal uh, era, you know, with that F FDR um, administration, uh, because of the labor pressure and because of the labor power in this country, they were able to pass a lot of progressive legislation 
Um, but yeah, essentially, it's a it's a delicate balance. It always has been, and, and more so a one sided class war. The capitalists are very successful in keeping down uh, you know labor here in this country, and at times even using violence. But yeah, I think it's kind of just been one red scare, communist scare after another. You know, every every so often, labor makes some uh, gains, but then the you know, it's, it's broken up with, um, you know, political power and, you know, the corporate state nexus, which is always very much intertwined and a lot of, um, you know, pro-business legislation, for example, like NAFTA, which is not a free trade agreement, but it's an investor's rights agreement. And you get um, administrations like Reagan, who um, essentially will not enforce U.S. labor law. And so they'll allow corporations to illegally um, fire union organizers. They'll allow them to bring in scab workers and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, that's kind of the way it goes. So even, even um, you know, at a time when labor unions are more powerful, um, or I'm sorry, more popular than ever, you know, you have a, you have a president in there, and, and Joe Biden, who essentially wasn't, uh, he kind of made it illegal for the, the striking um, train workers or rail workers or whatever, he essentially made them and forced them back into, into work and I think didn't allow them to have any sick days. So, you know, um, even though he says, you know, he's a pro-labor president, no later, no president has been, you know, they're always on the side of corporations and, and big business. So, yeah, the United States is definitely a business-run society. We have two business parties um, Republicans, or essentially, have one business party in the United States. Republicans and Democrats, just two different factions, but they're essentially, you know, two capitalist parties. But uh, yeah, what what about labor? Um, so in Turkey, and maybe you can kind of compare and contrast what you've seen in America, uh, and this is highly hyper capitalist society, and maybe some of the differences in Turkey, and maybe if you've traveled to Europe too, maybe some of the differences there is kind of Turkey is kind of that. Um, yeah, I guess it kind of brings East and West together. So what about the differences? You know, you grew up in Turkey. Maybe you can talk about your background, your education, and uh, what, what experiences you had as you came to the United States. What's similar? What's different? Right. So just starting with the United States, to me it seems that, um, right, we have Reagan who kind of spearheaded the neoliberal era. And in some ways there was an opening um, for that that was created due to stagflation in the 70s. And then you have Bill Clinton, who in my mind really cemented a lot of this um, into place. And, you know, ever since Reagan, you've had a bunch of Reagan clones and that uh, now what we are seeing is kind of the, the culmination of, of the neoliberal era in my mind. Um, all the, the convergence of crises that have arisen due to this philosophy are now in our faces. And it seems like a moment where we have to recognize that either as a society we try something else or we continue down the self-destructive path. But just to compare Turkey to the U.S. for a moment, because you are right in um, mentioning that I did grow up in Turkey and I've also lived in the U.S. And the parallels between both of them were always struck, um, were always striking to me. They are both... Um, very kind of nationalistic, militaristic um, societies. Turkey used to be an empire, so that dead empire mentality is, is I would say, still prominent to, to a degree. And the U.S. is now a dying empire. It's not a dead empire, but I do see echoes of that same kind of attitude. 
And you know, this this neoliberalism, this Reagan revolution, hypercapitalism, whatever you want to call it, it has been one of the US's biggest exports to, to much of the world, including Turkey, and this corporate monoculture as well. Um, so that what, what has transpired in the US in terms of corporations amassing even more control has not um, remained contained to the US, right? That has spread all over the world. Um, and also I will say that it seems that um, the U.S. has played a big role in propping up political Islam or Islamism. They certainly did while the Soviets um, were in power, you know, to fight the Soviets. And it is my belief that through Operation Gladio and other um, mechanisms, um, that the U.S. played a role in heightening kind of this very uh, right-wing Islamist, nationalist um, ideology in Turkey from the 80s onwards to um, cement their interests, right? Because there is a very strong link between fascist forces or far-right forces all over the world and the United States. They've always been in cahoots with each other. Um, right, so sorry if that was kind of convoluted response to the question, but yeah, um, there's a lot going on. No, no doubt. It's, the world is a complex place, so... Uh, I'm kind of going off and piggybacking on some of the things I've read from Chomsky, but essentially after World War One, uh, the, the United States supplanted uh, Brit- Britain for control in the Middle East um, and uh, essentially installing uh, an arid facade. You know, and essentially Saudi Arabia is basically a family. So, um, you know, the and the United States is allied typically with, you know, very, very much fascist collaborator, collaborators, outright fascists, um, you know, some of the world's worst autocrats and human rights abusers and dictators um, throughout the world. There's a, there's a lot of propaganda about the United States and, you know, spreading democracy, but that couldn't be further from the truth. And uh, since World War One and World War Two, as um, some of the European powers in the United States divided up the world, um, they decided to ally with um, the religious extremists, um, kind of politicizing, um, you know, I guess the Muslim religion and, and these Arab facades in the Middle East, uh, in, 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 in favor, or I, I guess uh, in favor of, instead of um, secular nationalism. Because what the United States doesn't want is a regime um, that kind of nationalist power, uh, you know, the people kind of come together and, and kind of pursue an independent course of economic development. What the United States wants to ensure is a country's resources belong to the corporations that are, you know, kind of in the United States. So they don't want um, the wealth of a, of a, of a, a country's um, resources to go to that domestic population. They want it to be controlled and the wealth coming into America, into American banks and being controlled by American corporations. So that's kind of what, um, you know, the United States has done, especially in the Middle East, is installing these kind of, um, you know, Arab facades, these kind of religious families, these, um, which essentially Saudi Arabia is is basically a country run by an insanely rich family. It's basically all it is. Um, And then, you know, uh, aligning also with, you know, these human rights abusers and, um, you know, I guess also like dictators and, you know, anti, you know, basic countries that um, don't even, um, you know, have a hint of democratic processes. Um, so that's kind of the way, you know, I see it. 
Um, what, what about like um, Turkey and their government? What's kind of going on there now? And how do people see the conflict in Gaza uh, and just this ethnic cleansing and genocide going on there? Turkey is a very, very powerful country because it does, you know, kind of um, bring together different cultures. It's an infusion of different East and West um, kind of ethnicities and whatnot. Um, so it's a very, you know, important geopolitical peace in, in the in the world puzzle what's what's going on with the turkish government there and how do the, how do you see this um uh conflict right now going on in the middle east especially uh the genocide and ethnic cleansing going on in gaza right so but before i answer that more broadly i just want to say that there has historically been a huge connection between nationalism organized religion and capitalism so i think that the people who run the u.s are aware of that and have weaponized that but specifically when it comes to Turkey, it's interesting because Turkey used to be, in terms of alliances, in terms of geopolitical alliances, Turkey was actually historically in the West's corner. Um, and Turkey is, that is why Turkey is a NATO member. In fact, they, are, they have the second largest military in NATO, which makes them a pretty important member of NATO. Um, but with the current administration that rules Turkey, um, See, it's, see, this is where it gets complex, right? Because I don't agree with the um, political Islam that they're trying to bring forth. They kind of fail to really do, do so because you can't really change society from top down no matter how much you want to. But they are kind of pushing forth a little bit. If you, if you would think of, it would be the equivalent of your Ted Cruz, I suppose. You know, religion and government kind of coming together. I am in Texas. He is the center for Texas. So I, that's obviously not in line with my politics whatsoever. But yeah, nice reference there. Because that's right. actually the senator that represents me for some reason. <laughs> Anyways. Right. So I don't agree with that. But geopolitically, it's a bit of a different story. Because they have distanced themselves from the West and the U.S. a little bit. And that doesn't mean they're entirely in the Russia-China sphere either. But Turkey is trying to do this weird thing where they're trying to be in between. Um, and I think it's a very, very tight rope to walk, if you will. Or, yeah. Um, so oddly enough, although I hate most of their domestic policies, I have actually appreciated kind of um, this willingness to not completely, completely 100% obey the United States all the time. Although ultimately that does end up still happening. It's just not 100% anymore. Like during the, the war, during the Ukraine-Russia conflict, um, Turkey wasn't as adamant um, as, as the West was and wanted them to be in terms of sanctioning Russia and being completely anti-Russia and cutting Russia off. They tried to stay in between. And now what's happening here with in, in Gaza, um, this is actually one of the biggest reversals I've seen because now... I'm actually a lot more satisfied with the position Turkey is taking and people in Turkey are taking than the West. It, it seems like there's a lot more awareness of kind of the brutality um, that people in Gaza have been living under in Turkey. And I think that part of that is you don't have that APAC kind of big propaganda machine that you do in the West. And part of that is also because there's a common religion there, so there's more sympathy to be felt. Um, but both Turkish media and just Turkish, my Turkish friends have been a lot more aware of what's really happening um, than my U.S. Uh, friends or U.S. media, from what I've seen. I remember a quote, too, from Biden. He said something along the lines of, um, if Israel didn't exist, 
we have, we would have already invented one. So that's essentially Israel exists. Uh, it's essentially a uh, military outpost. It's a place for um, the United States military to run the Middle East by force. Of course, the Middle East is the world's preeminent uh, oil reserve. If you control uh, the Middle East, you control the world's oil supply, and that's what the United States has been doing um, since the Great War and since World War II, controlling the world's oil supply. We continue to be an oil-based economy, and we use uh, Israel uh, as kind of our attack dog or uh, you know, essentially our lieutenant uh, client state, uh, one of the most dangerous, um, you know, military threats in the Middle East, a nuclear power, uh, of course, as well. Uh, Israel has gotten uh, $160 billion, I think, since World War II. And if it was a state, if it was one of the 50, it was, if it was the 51st state, it would be number one in federal funding. So that's essentially why Israel is allowed to carry out genocide and ethnic cleansing because it is um, allied with the United States and the United States is a rogue power so it inherits um, the rights of the United States because we're enabling Israel without American uh, ideological support political support, financial support and certainly military support Israel would not exist, it would cease to uh, it would collapse, it would cease to exist and another thing that Israel does it's a very highly militarized economy uh, and, and allows like U.S. weapons contractors to test um, you know, new technologies on live targets that Palestinians who um, are not even, they're unpeople, they're not even given rights, they're not even allowed to exist, they're not supposed to exist, they're just a nuisance. And essentially we're enabling uh, Israel to kind of carry out this ethnic cleansing because they are so, so uh, important to the United States geopolitically because they allow the United States to uh, control the Middle East by force. And when you control the Middle East, again, you control the world's energy supplies. So that's why uh, I, I think I think it's some of the root of the problems in the Middle East are because of Israel. And the reason it exists as again, as uh, I requote Joe Biden, if they didn't exist, we would have created one um, already. So. That's exactly right. Um, I, I think that many people are aware that Israel is kind of a U.S. puppet in the region. That's their main function. And, you know, um, sorry if this isn't exactly relevant, but it comes to mind, so I'll say it. I found yeah. that I was um, in this weird alliance with people who are uh, much more right-wing than I am. Uh, first, because I don't believe in cancelling people just because they have different political views. I actually think it's important to be surrounded by different political views. Um, but also because we had actually agreed on some issues um, during you know, COVID. I, that was one moment where I felt that um, I felt a little bit more alienated from the left, at least uh, you know, in the beginning. Um, and these people, these more right-wing people that... Um, I became friends with because we bonded over that one issue, kind of civil the civil liberties issue. They were all about like, oh, free speech, and, and they would always demonize the left and say the left doesn't care about about free speech, but the right does. And look at how authoritarian the left is. And it's so interesting. Suddenly, now that there is an issue that they disagree with. They're the ones <laughs> who are, who are opposing free speech, and they're the ones who are censoring and the quote unquote snowflakes and. Um, you know, calling people racist for disagreeing with them and what have you. 
So or, just or, or, people kicked out of that group, if you will, for being an anti-Semite, quote unquote. So yes, exactly. People criticizing the policies of Israel, um, you know, are demonized sometimes, I guess, on the so-called left and being called anti-Semites. I think um, the United States government, uh, I think the Congress, didn't they pass some like uh, anti-Semitic legislation or something along those lines, obviously trying to support their uh, client state in Israel. But like, obviously, you know, criticizing the rogue state of Israel and ethnic cleansing and um, what they're doing in Gaza, uh, you, you can speak freely about another country's government. That certainly does not make you anti-Semitic. And, um, you know, killing kids and bombing hospitals, that has nothing to do with defense. That's imperialism. That's an ethnic cleansing. That's genocide. So, yeah, so, so much of it's propagandized. But I, I've seen the same similarities. I've actually, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do is, like, you know, working class and poor people need to come together. What the right and the, I'm sorry, what the what the ruling class does is divide and conquer. So I think some of this left-right ideology stuff, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot more gray area and a lot more things and areas where, you know, working class and poor people agree. And, I, yeah, I've totally noticed um, that, you know, the, we have two authoritarian parties here in the United States, like the Republicans and the Democrats both are. But, yeah, it, seem, it does seem like the Democrats here are more the party of censorship. Uh, and it does seem like, you know, the Republicans are more in favor of free speech or at least, you know, what they like. Although, you know, the Republicans are also behind a lot of the book banning and book burning here. And that's kind of something Chomsky's told me. Nobody with power and privileges in favor of democracy or free speech because it interferes with power and privilege. That's exactly right. Um, divide and conquer, I think, is the ruling one of the ruling class's biggest tactics. And it's something that we have to learn to overcome because that's how they... Um, keep us fighting against each other, you know, whether it's this left-right paradigm or what have you, all these artificial divisions um, or on social issues. It's also we don't focus on the 1% ruling class, um, on our owners, if you will, and um, uniting against them. So, but, but, but I do think that people are waking up to this as well. It's an interesting time. Yeah, I totally think cancel culture is a bad thing if you want to maybe stick on censorship a little bit. Like cancel culture, calling people out for something they said 10, 15 years ago on social media. I think that's a bad thing. You know, that's just trying to, um, I, I don't know, I guess trying to win some argument or, you know, try to cancel someone for what, what they said. Uh, and people can grow. People can change their opinions. So, yeah, I think, I think social media um, – I don't know if it's a positive on society. Uh, I can certainly see it being negative. Most technologies are neutral. But, yeah, it does seem like, you know, at least to me, the Democrats are more, uh, at least in this country, more of the cancel culture, censorship stuff. And I think, you know, whether it's left censorship or right censorship or left or right attacks on free speech, I think it's a bad thing. I think as a leftist, you should be in favor of free speech. And what I mean by free speech is if you think um, the people, if you think you are entitled to free speech and the people you agree with are entitled to free speech, then your enemies should have those same rights, the people that you don't agree with. And when you limit free speech, uh, you are also essentially giving the state or corporations, you're making them the authority on truth and history. So I'm very... Uh, I'm very skeptical. Uh, I'm very weary of putting any limits on free speech, any limits um, stopping just short of causing anyone uh, essentially body injury or harm, that sort of thing. I don't think that people should be 
Um, you know, essentially, uh, it should, I think it should be safe, you know, and, and to say in, in, in whatever they think, but I do, I do not want the state or corporations the authority on, on speech. And these corporations, you know, like Amazon and Microsoft and, you know, different media and Google, that sort of stuff, they're not just um, media companies. They are information companies. They control the entire information system. So essentially, we have these private tyrannies um, that are making up, you know, laws as they go, or not laws, but policies uh, on free speech, censorship, suppression of information and facts, and it's just, um, you know, essentially a system run by elites um, who control media, the government, uh, who control the information systems, technologies, and I'll say it again, you know, those with power and privilege have never been in favor of free speech nor democracy. Right, I'm exactly with you. And here's the thing. So I grew up in Turkey, and that means I am very familiar with censorship. Um, censorship became an increasing issue in Turkey uh, as I grew older. Um, and that's not to say that Turkey didn't have censorship issues before the current administration. I think before this administration, Turkey was more so a little bit of a, um, an indirect military dictatorship where you still had multi-party democracy that was occasionally broken up by coups. Um, but the military would do everything in its power to kind of retain the secular nationalist order. Now it's a different story because people in the government have changed and ideologies have shifted. Um, but censorship is always a big issue to me. So when I moved to America and I noticed it ratcheting up in the U.S. Um, at the tip of this, at the beginning of this decade, if you will, I, I realized that this was going to be a big issue, even even if people are being censored. Um, even if the people who are being censored I disagree with, it's still a big issue. And, and here's why. It is crucial in my mind for a society to have an open platform where all ideas can be discussed, even the most difficult, even the most offensive things. I think these are the most important things that we actually have to be able to discuss in the open. And it's only with these conversations that people who might hold views that we find dangerous um, or harmful it is only through conversation that they can actually be exposed to different views if you just shut them off from the means of communication, if you will. Um, you are only going to get them more kind of angry and, and more uh, fortified in, in their position. So I do think that that uh, free and open exchange of ideas and that open dialogue is really important, especially, especially for the ideas that we might hate most. Yeah, I, I definitely come to the defense uh, of people on the right, on people that I disagree with when they are censored. Not because I, you know, want to support those people, but because I want to support free speech. So I want to show people that, hey, I might, you know, not agree with this person, but what I disagree with is censorship. You know what I mean? And, and um, I think it's just a, a bad thing no matter what. So that's why I think sometimes people confuse me uh, with maybe someone with right-wing ideologies when that's not the case at all. I'm just supporting their ability and their um, privilege or whatever you want to call it to spout off their right-wing opinions. I'm, I'm fine with them spouting off right-wing opinions, I think that they should have the right to do so. I just don't agree with them. So I think if you listen to me and listen to my podcast, especially on long-form uh, topics like this, we can kind of get out there what we have to say. Like, certainly, like, I'm a, I'm a radical socialist. I'm a 
I'm an anarcho-syndicalist or a socialist anarchist, you know, I'm essentially a far leftist, you know what I mean? So, like, that's why I don't think, um, by any means, free speech is a right-wing issue. However, it seems like, again, in the United States, more people, it seems like in the Republican Party, and more more so uh, with right-wing ideology, seem to be in favor of more, whatever they want to call it, free speech absolutism, which, of course, Elon Musk is no uh, free speech absolutist. Uh, he bans people all the time on the platform. Um, but yeah, I, I, I try to, I try to, at least on, on the issues and on principles, I try to come to the defense of what I think is important in here. I think it's, uh, the right to express your opinions and, and free speech. And I think, um, you know, I think that privacy, that sort of stuff, like, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, I think like when, when enemies of, of the left, you know, when, when they are outed, you know, they're, they're sometimes censored. Or they, you know, they lose their privacy, and I think it's, I think it's a good thing for people to um, be able to speak their mind, to be safe about it, to not be censored, and to try to still kind of maintain, you know, privacy and that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't think that, um, like, one thing that I think is like also like this is kind of with Snowden. Some of the I've read some of his stuff, some of his revelations. Uh, being an insider and now uh, a whistleblower, which Obama was prosecuting him. Obama prosecuted more whistleblowers than any administration in history, and he was one of the targets, Snowden was, of the Obama administration. But I, I like to quote him sometimes. Uh, he said something like, um, or maybe this was um, Julian Assange, but they were both kind of fighting for the same kind of stuff. You know, corporations and governments, they should have transparency, uh, and citizens, individuals, they should have privacy, and they should also have free speech. I don't think that uh, corporations uh, should, or, nor government should have free speech. I think that the people should have free speech, not these, um, you know, powerful institutions run by elites. So I think two, two of those things are very important to me. Uh, the right of individuals, human rights, uh, the right to privacy, and the rights to free speech. And I think uh, Edward Snowden and Julian Assange are both champions for those issues. Exactly. Very well said. And here's the thing. You are not going to eradicate or alleviate racism by banning it or censoring it. In fact, what you are going to do is the opposite. You are going to get those racist people uh, more angry and, and more radicalized. And um, and also, you want to be very careful with being with giving big tech and the corporate state um, the power to censor, even if it's for racist speech. Because here's the thing, that can be very easily weaponized, and that's precisely what we're seeing right now. How many people are being censored for quote-unquote anti-Semitism right now, when really all they're doing is they're opposing genocide and the blockade on Gaza and just kind of this fascist Zionist regime. Yeah, that's that's a problem with what I have with corporations. Like in, ge- in general, I would like them replaced with co-ops and democratically managed institutions without hierarchies, board of directors, layers of management. So anytime we have a corporation which is a top-down structure, it's a it's a private tyranny. The people on top are going to make the rules. And again, those people have never been in favor of free speech or democracy. It would interfere with their privilege. So I think the problem here is not necessarily. Um, I think the problem here is is the corporations that run big tech. Like I think I think generally technology is neutral. That's why I think you know social media can be a good thing or a bad thing for society. Uh, but I think these corporations that run, you know, like for example, Twitter or whatever, X Social Now. I think it's a, essentially like a, a town hall, and I think it should be. Um, the internet was funded for decades by the public. 
um, you know, with, with taxpayer money at universities, these technologies were developed for decades, literally, in, in the public system uh, before they were just given away to people like Bill Gates to make a fortune on. So companies, I think, like Twitter, which is effectively a town hall, you know, not just in the United States, but internationally, too, I think that these institutions should be democratically managed, whether it's from, you know, by the, the local communities that use these um, technologies or whether it's, it's the workers, you know, but I definitely don't think it should be run by elites, shareholders, boards of directors, people like Elon Musk and his buddies, you know what I mean? We are, get once again, on the same page on this issue. The, the corporate power, um, is, is, or just the corporate interests, are, are a huge concern here. Um, and really, these it should be, again, that the people who democratically manage these platforms, as you said, um, they should not be billionaire, oligarch billionaire owned, run and operated. And we're seeing kind of the, um, I think now we are seeing uh, why it's so dangerous to, to allow um, this concentration of power to fewer and fewer hands um, kind of on these social media platforms. So it's maybe a good transition here. Let's get into like indie media versus maybe the corporate media. Uh, we talked a little bit on the pre-call about parallel institutions. I'm very interested in, um, you know, making organizations um, that operate within the system, but more so outside the system. Of course, that's what Necessary Illusions is. I'm not corporate media. I'm Indian, indie media. I'm outside the system. Um, so I think... You know, the difference with the corporate media and India media is we're actually, you know, indie media, we're able to get, you know, kind of different views out there. Uh, the corporate media, they're the agenda setting media that are run by elites and corporate stakeholders and, and those types of people, rich people, essentially. And they present a very certain picture uh, of society and how it operates, a very pro-business, pro-capitalist uh, ideology. Um, it's a filtering system. They suppress information. They decide what's news and what's not news. So, for example, you know, the media here is very pro-Israeli for a number of reasons. One uh, is because it allows the United States to control the world's oil supply. Uh, and it also uh, allows the United States uh, to run the world by force because Israel is, again, nothing more than uh, a military outpost for the United States. Uh, they also, what they do is they censor information, which we've discussed a lot already tonight. Um, they also bring on their own experts, quote-unquote experts. They, they bring on people, they handpick these people to kind of, um, you know, paint the picture of the world that they want. They have an agenda, so they handpick their experts to present that agenda. They might have a suit and tie and maybe a degree from Harvard, and all of a sudden that sounds official. Um, they also, you know, have, have um, a uh, filtering system where they filter out maybe things that they don't want the world to know or the people to know. There's a lot of misinformation, of course, propaganda, and sometimes even historical re-engineering and outright lies. So that's kind of what the corporations do. What I'm trying to do in indie media is to present an alternative to the picture that the corporate media uh, presents to us, and I'm trying to uh, present um, facts, you know, at least the way that I see them. And I think that the things that I think are important, the things I think are newsworthy, are much different than what the corporate media presents. Right. The main function of corporate media is to manufacture consent. And indie media, the rise of indie media, has been a huge uh, thorn or has poked a huge hole in that. 
And that is one of the revolutionary aspects of the internet and social media and one of the more positive sides of it. They no longer have a complete and total stranglehold and monopoly over information. And I think something that um, kind of the rulers of our society, if you will, understand very well is the importance of narrative and paradigm. Many of our systems and institutions arise from the paradigms that we hold and the narratives that we hold. And that's why the media gatekeeping of information is so important, right? It's all about narrative management. Um, but the rise of indie media has been revolutionary, and um, I, I hope it continues. You talked about paradigms a little bit and maybe some domestic policies in Turkey. Why don't you talk about the education system a little bit? What should, what's education all about? What should it be about? Uh, I definitely think it should be uh, trying to present truth, uh, trying to um, make uh, in, in individuals question uh, the world that they live in, ask difficult questions, uh, maybe be creative, um, you know, innovative. Um, but it seems like, at least to me, going through the United States education system, it's all about uh, subservience, obedience, following the rules, standardized tests, um, and even the student debt uh, crisis that we have here in the United States. What it does is limit choice. Students that come out uh, of school with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, they have almost no choice but to enter the workforce join a corporation and maybe one day hope to pay it off. So how do you see the education system? What should it be about and how does it differ maybe between Turkey, what you were maybe educated in the system that you grew up in and what do you see here in the United States? Well, the, the student loan issue in the United States in particular is criminal. Let me start with that. Um, I think that in many ways though, we, we the same issue all over the world, which is the education systems in place are more about reinforcing obedience and, and hierarchy and memorizing and just regurgitating instead of being taught to think for yourself and to think critically. You see, in Turkey, though, I never actually went to a, uh, to a Turkish school. I always, um, the, I had a weird education situation where I, um, I, I attended a British school kind of in Turkey. Um, so that was, oddly enough, that was um, my formative education experience. But I do think that this um, standards, standardization tests all of this is kind of a global issue. And it's, um, it's something that I hope that we break out of. We really need a new paradigm in education. Totally agree. I mean, what I think education tries to do is indoctrinate, not teach people to think critically or creative or look at the world differently, but to conform and to be obedient. So, yeah, I agree. I think it's a big problem. It's not just a big problem here, not just a big problem in the United States or Europe or pretty much anywhere you go. I think that's an issue. And I think it's, it's on the left, it's a constant uphill battle uh, against, um, you know, the, the capitalist oppressors, but also against the ruling class, which obviously they use the the uh, educational system to indoctrinate people into a certain way of thinking uh, about the world. And what it, what it tries to do, I think, if you, if you talk to some people, especially those on the right, especially those with right-wing ideology um, that kind of believe that stuff, they can't even think of a world uh, that would exist without capitalism. I think that's what the system tries to do, is to try to indoctrinate you so much that you can't even think of a world existing without the capitalist system in place. And I think that the, the people that uh, can't do so, that th those, are the, the, those are easy ways to see that, um, you know, especially 
uh, the ruling class and the people on the right and the people with an agenda as they develop the educational system, they have won. You know, when you create those types of people who can't even see an alternative to the, the world that we live in. I'm really glad that we've touched on education or that media because those are the two of the big influences in maintaining kind of this capitalist paradigm, if you will. And it's and that's exactly right. I think many people are unable to um, conceptualize any form of social organization beyond capitalism. I think that many people think that you need the profit motive in order to motivate people to, to produce, <laughs> to do things. And in fact, I think that um, if anything, capitalism stifles innovation um, in many ways because for, for several reasons. But one thing that it does is it, it doesn't make us, it, it enforces us to um, compete against each other as opposed to cooperate. So now you'll have companies hiding secrets, you'll have companies kind of suppressing innovations that could threaten their profit model, even if those innovations um, could solve some of the social and ecological issues that their pursuit of profits created in the first place. So it, it is a very big quagmire that we're in there. Let's talk about uh, maybe your educational background. You are a creator, you are an author, and maybe even an artist. So what do you think about those disciplines? Do you need formal education to be an author, to be an artist? Uh, or is that something that maybe you can kind of learn on your own or learn with a mentor? Do you need um, a formalized educational system to you know, become uh, a creator like yourself? Um, and, and were you formally educated? Uh, in, in the ways of like you know uh, writing and and, and uh, maybe the content that you produce, or did you kind of learn the, your your skills outside the system? I think there is no one way to go about it, and I think it depends on the individual. But for me, I ha I did have more formal education until I was eighteen, and then I moved to the U.S. to study drama at a U.S. university in New York. And that was a very non-traditional um, education, and I'm very grateful, actually, that I, I went through it. You know, that was more so artistic training, although there was some formal education attached with it. Um, and at the same time, though, I wanted to make the most of being in a place like New York. So even while I was at school, I sought out all of these writing mentors and teachers. Um, and here's why. I, I was initially under the impression that I did not need any kind of creative writing education at all. I just thought, you do, making a book, writing a book is just making things up. I don't understand why we need to go to a teacher for that. And it was when someone else told me that actually um, I could really benefit from, you know, seeking out teachers and learning more that I did that. And I found the most incredible mentors and they gave me the most incredible tools and it, um, it really helped me develop my craft, and I was so I will so I still want to stress that I'm in the beginning of my journey. I don't have a career, if you will. I'm still writing my first book. And you're, you're working on a novel. Talk, talk to us about the book you're working on, and maybe some of your creative projects. You're writing a novel right now, is that right? That is correct. Yes, I've been working on this novel since 2019, and it has. Uh, changed my life dramatically. It has given me a sense of purpose and meaning that I never had before. It's put me on a spiritual journey and has made me a much more spiritual person as a result. And the book, I, I, I'm a little shy on the details, but I'll tell you this. The book is set in the late 60s to early 70s. Um, it's kind of, it has elements of both magical realism and sci-fi. Um, and in many ways, it covers these themes of revolution and social change. Um, 
And also just kind of exploring a potential synthesis between the linear and the nonlinear or science and spirituality and mysticism. Um, because actually it is my belief that um, future paradigm that we are going towards could integrate those two fields. Um, and one more thing I want to touch on real quick, I apologize, but just on the topic of paradigm. So for a very long time, we've been living under the, this Cartesian, Newtonian, mechanistic, reductionist way of viewing the world. Um, it, it teaches us that we are all separate, atomized um, components of existence. And in my mind, um, that has what has given rise to not only this uh, Calvinist mindset that we operate under, but capitalism itself and all these systems based on separation and domination. And we are, it is my belief that we are now seeing that those paradigms that we've lived under for so long are obsolete. Um, we're seeing kind of the negative repercussions of that, the societal breakdown, the, all these crises that are converging at this moment. Um, so I think that we're in this liminal space where new paradigms are uh, arising and more people might be open to them. Um, and this is where indie media is crucial. This is where artists are crucial. We need a multi-pronged approach and whatever your avenue of expression is, um, you know, definitely make sure to pursue your role because everyone has their own unique role. You said a Calvinist mindset. What's a Calvinist mindset? I was just curious. Calvinism is this old religious idea that only a few people are worthy of, that only a few people are worthy, essentially, that only a few people deserve to be wealthy, only a few people deserve to have rights. Elites. This is elitist mindset, isn't it? And, and that, and that um, is subconsciously something that still um, exists kind of in the public mind, if you will, um, until we hopefully root it out. I think we should. Uh, you talked about in your book themes of revolution, social change. You certainly don't see a lot of that in popular media or popular books. You know, this radicalist ideology of change, um, that's something that's usually suppressed by the corporate media and the mainstream media, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly right. And that uh, conflict in itself is something I'm exploring in my work. Even, I've looked at, like, I don't watch a ton of, uh, especially, like, high-budget films. I'm more into, like, indie movies and that sort of thing and dramas. Uh, but every once in a while, I'll go to the theaters and see, like, a, a big-budget flick. And I think it was, like, Guardians of the Galaxy I remember watching uh, a few months back, maybe six months or so ago. Uh, and in this movie, it's supposed to be, like, you know, far into the future. And it was okay. It was entertaining. But one thing I couldn't stand about it, uh, there were corporations, like, Interstellar... You know, uh, you know, corporations all over the universe, and I'm just like, what? Like, we're really uh, expected to believe this fictional uh, universe uh, in this fictional movie is still dominated by corporations. I'm like, I can't even, I can't even go to the movie and escape this corporation, corporate domination of my life. It left, left me, uh, I don't know, a little bit. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't feel too good about it. I'm just like, these corporations are everywhere, even in our movies, and I can't stand it. I want to get away from these corporations. And I'd love some more uh, working class, you know, co-ops and, um, you know, worker-owned, worker-controlled, social change, revolutionary themes and, and media, but unfortunately, uh, we don't get much of that. Exactly. You know, they say that the military industrial complex has um, a lot of power in Hollywood and kind of they, re they say that they review the scripts. I don't know how true that is or to what extent, but I'm sure that it happens. 
Um, although I will say that, you know, Star Trek did kind of buck that trend a little bit. I haven't actually watched Star Trek, but just from what I've heard, I know that they explored kind of a post-capitalist system in their show at some point. Um, but you're right, many shows... Too. Yeah, I heard, I heard uh, it was more socialist. Star, Star Wars was very capitalist, dystopia, uh, and, and Star Trek, I didn't watch either of them really, but the Star Trek was more of like a socialist, communitarian type society, which I dig. Right. Um, I, I don't want to speak to that too much because I haven't actually watched Star Trek, but um, it's nice to know that there have been some media art pieces that have bucked that trend. And, and I hope that we continue to buck that trend and poke holes in it in the years to come. You are a sorcerer. You are a proletariat wizard. Tell us about that. <laughs> That's just me being silly. Um, what can I tell you about that? You're spiritual. You believe in uh, spirituality, magic, higher power, stuff like that? I do, I do not have an organized religion, and I used to be a lot more agnostic, but I have become a lot more spiritual after life experiences and inner experiences. And at this point, I would say I believe in chakras and energy body and even reincarnation and all of these things without, you know, holding to one organized religion, religious model. Although I will say in my mind, I think that the Buddhists and the Hindus were right about some things. Um, and so I, I suppose proletariat wizard comes from this. Um, I feel that especially in the West, there's a very excessively imbalanced, excessively linear way of thinking that has trapped us in, in a bit of a box. And I think we've lost a bit of this balance to the successive linear hyper-rationalism. Um, so I'm trying to bring more of this non-linear thinking um, back into the zeitgeist, hopefully. I like it. So what, what, does it, what does it mean to be spiritual? Do you believe in a higher power of God? Or what exactly, when you say you're spiritual, what does that mean to you? I believe in oneness. I believe that many of our systems in place today, including capitalism and colonialism, um, arise from story of separation, this idea that we are uh, totally separate from each other and we're not interconnected to each other or the planet or the greater universe at large. And I think that many of the new systems will arise from this understanding that actually it's all interconnected, um, which is not to say that we're one being monolith, right? Oneness is not sameness. It's more so unity and diversity. And um, I've always, when I use the term God, I don't necessarily mean the biblical notion of, um, you know, this, this man and you must obey his diktats or whatever. I believe that God is kind of a, a, a spiritual force that exists in everything and everyone and cannot be separated from us and there's no kind of judgment. Um, and the, the final piece to this is I would say I'm, spiritual agnostic because i am very spiritual but i'm not dead set on uh this is the way it works or it must be this way i'm uh i'm more open to different possibilities we got about 10 more minutes to go so i'm going to do some maybe rapid fire questions i've seen sure. you retweet some illuminati body uh illuminati bot uh tweets maybe some stuff on conspiracy theories are you a conspiracy theorist what is a conspiracy theory, and do you have any favorites if you are one? <laughs> hmm. I thought, okay, there's a balance here. I think someone, someone said, like, uh, I think this is, I retweeted it too. It said, um, you know, you can be wrong or you can be a conspiracy theorist. I'll have to look for it. But something along those lines, it's like, yeah, you know, 
Uh, I guess it's not so bad. Uh, go ahead. I'll, I'll look for it. You can go ahead and what do you think? What do you think about conspiracy theories? What do they? What's that stuff mean to you? I think there's a balance that has to be had because I think there are grains of truth in it. But I think that people who go totally into the conspiracy realm and have no other um, kind of form of analysis, if you will, those people tend to be excessively surface level or they even detach or they just don't have a systems or paradigms uh, sense to their approach of the world. They focus excessively on bad actors without focusing on the systems that give rise to those dynamics. At the same time, I do believe that um, the establishment has used this term conspiracy theory to um, make people kind of not question some of their more nefarious acts or to make people feel like they're just kind of uneducated idiots for questioning certain things. And that account, actually, interestingly enough, um, reminds me of this convergence, actually, that I see with, with um, this insurgent left, if you will, and the conspiracy theorists. And I'm not saying they're the same, but there's a similarity in that they're both just kind of like, everything sucks about the way that we do things now, and this is deeply corrupt, and most people don't see it. So that account says things that are more broad that I think aren't necessarily conspiratorial, but more so just anti, um, just kind of critical of the current system that we that we operate under, if you will. Yeah, yeah, dig it. Um, let's go to, i got a few more questions here. Um, let's go to the universe, the future of humanity, uh, future society on earth. How do you see it? How do you see it playing out for us? We, you, you mentioned the United States is a, is a dying empire. Do you think it ends? And what do you think of the future of humanity looks like? It could be pretty bad. I think if we don't figure out this climate crisis stuff, right? Yes. I, I mean, you know, I don't want to be in the business of um, prediction, there are many possibilities, but my sense, and just from listening to both philosophers that I like and uh, intuitives, honestly, my sense is that um, the convergence of crises that we are witnessing at the moment is a result of the systems and paradigms that we've been operating under, and it's no longer sustainable. It's blowing up in our faces. And so we collectively, as a society, are being um, brought face-to-face -face with this choice. Do we refuse to change and continue down this path of environmental degradation, endless war, just um, corporate power, what have you, all, ol oligarchy, or do we say, um, we're not going to do this anymore, we're going to try something else. Um, and sorry, one more thing I want to say to this. I know that in my own life, um, it, it required kind of a breakdown for me to change um, who I was as a person and to change my bad habits because I saw... Um, what, what, what that looked like ultimately when it blew up in my face. And so I was forced to change. And a very wise person told me during that period, often a breakdown is a breakthrough. And that is the big hope that I see in this moment, that yes, all of our uh, social structures and everything are breaking down and it's going to be tumultuous and I don't want to diminish the pain that goes with it. But at the same time, the silver lining is there is an immense opportunity for change that uh, wasn't there before. I like this quote here. Speaking of which, uh, this is Bertrand Russell, one of my favorite philosophers. Shall we put an end to the human race or shall mankind renounce war? Uh, I think that's kind of where the crosswords where we are. We have this climate crisis, the nuclear crisis. Um, you know, we're fighting over resources, resource wars. 
uh, just you know retweeted not too long ago about what some five hundred billion dollar gas uh, reserve or um, you know essentially you know this, this very valuable uh, gas reserve uh, natural gas I believe right off the coast of Gaza so uh, certainly that's one of the, one of the reasons I think that uh, we're ex- ex- uh, we're witnessing this ethnic cleansing going on right now because. You know, uh, for Israel, um, you know, Gaza, they're just kind of an inconvenience. They want, uh, they want, you know, that, that valuable land and they want the, the strip. They want that oceanfront property. And they also want access and control over this possibly $500 billion well. So, uh, you know, fortunately, Bertrand Russell was right maybe uh, a half century or more ago. Kind of to the point where we're either going to renounce war or we're going to put it into the human race, you know. We have to learn to tap into the spirit of cooperation over competition. In my mind, that's what we have to choose as a species um, because competition is just setting us against each other. So, yes, I believe in cooperation and sharing in a decentralized way, mind you. Um, but I believe that that's the lesson that we are being asked to learn at this time. What is art? Last question. Can you sum that up in a minute or so? What is art? Oh, goodness. I don't know if I'm going to come up with a good response for this. Let's see. Art is any kind of mode of creative expression, um, any kind of creative medium. Art is hard for me to define because art is not just one thing. It's not a linear thing. It can come in many forms, and sometimes people disagree um, if, if something is art or not. Um, but I think that also in, in this hyper excessively linear world, it is our saving grace and um, something that although our society undervalues is, I think, uh, tremendously important. Really well done under very difficult circumstances as our time is running out here. Ennis, Anarcho, Refusenik, uh, where can people find you if they like some of the stuff that you said today, maybe some of the projects you're working on? you got two minutes or so. Go ahead and plug whatever you want. The stage is yours. You can find me on my Twitter account. I don't know if you're going to attach it to um, this. It's Anarcho Refusenik. Um, I don't have a website or anything else right at the moment, um, but I I suppose I'll have more links on my Twitter profile as the need arises. Um, And I look forward to letting people know. um, I'm also working on a screenplay at the moment. I'm working with a screenwriter who's teaching me a lot about that art form as well. So I'm excited to hopefully one day share some of these pieces with with the world. But yeah, I I don't have those ready yet. I'm still working on them. It's December 2023. Let's catch up in the new year, 2024. What do you say? I say yes. Yes. Let's do it. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Ennis, Arnarko, Refusenik. Have a great night. Thank you. Well, and solidarity to anyone who's listening. Solidarity, my friend. Peace. Peace. Shout out to Drowning Dog and Malatesta for the music. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. 
No gods, no masters, I'm out. Side.